What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode, of course, of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Today, for episode 177, according to our spreadsheet, the uh, we're continuing on, of course, with Gene Wolfe's shadow, or I should say, the shadow of the torture, as I've just discovered a couple days ago. There is a the in front of shadow of the torture, and I have been mispronouncing it. I think on every single episode so far, I apologize, everybody. I had a, a real eye-opening moment two days ago when I realized that in a facepalm moment, but I'm still psyched because today this is our fifth episode on The Shadow of the Torture. We're covering, of course, chapters 19 through 22, some of the uh, the more mind-blowing chapters we've had so far, <laughs> and I'm really uh, you know, gearing up to get Drew's recap because, help me. <laughs> okay. In chapters 19 through 22 of The Shadow of the Torturer, we arrive at the Botanic Gardens of Nessus, and things get weird. As Severian and Agia approach the Botanic Gardens, Agia explains the Order of the Pelerines, and talks about their holy relic, the Claw of the Conciliator. Severian ruminates on the virtues of sunlight, and Agia asks him to kiss her. After that, they arrive at the gardens. As they have some time before they need to leave, they decide to poke into other gardens before acquiring his avern, and the curator recommends Severian look at the Garden of Antiques. However, he gets distracted by the Garden of Sand, however, and loses track of time. They only have time for one more garden, and Agia brings up the Garden of Delectation, implying they would have sex in there, but Severian instead enters the Jungle Garden. Here, he remembers a story Thecla told him of one of her childhood friends, and her encounter with Father Inire. They find a hut in the jungle where two anthropologists are interviewing a native. The two scientists are apparently from Paris, and only one of them can see Severian and Agia. The native, named Isangoma, can also see them, and pronounces them as evil spirits. Agia implores Severian to leave, but he listens to their conversation, and sees a male plane arrive. Agia finally gets fed up and heads out, and Severian follows. Agia nearly misses the door out of the jungle garden, but Severian finds it and opens it for her. They then proceed on to their destination, the Garden of Endless Sleep, where corpses are interred in an embalming lake and averns grow on the far shore. They meet an old man, who's looking for his dead wife in the lake, and are given directions to someone who can ferry them across. Severian loses track of the trail and falls into the water, nearly drowning, and drops Terminus Est. As he dives for his sword, a hand under the water grabs him and pulls him down. But he finds Terminus. Yeah, so that's good, he does. right? He finds Terminus Est. Oh my god. Terminus, Terminus Est. So, we, we, have a lot to, we have lots to talk about. Um, for me, not so much in the first couple of chapters, uh, but, for, but the last one, last two in particular, they kind of had me texting Drew going, Oh my god. <laughs> so, yeah, let's begin. Let's begin. Style. Yeah. Any style points you want to throw at us today? Mine are just reactions, so go ahead. Um, so these these chapters are another kind of a, a shift in style from what we've gotten used to. There is a lot more dialogue, just a lot more kind of character interaction in these four chapters. There, There's, e even when Severian is narrating he's narrating through dialogue, talking to himself, you know, like when he's telling himself the story of Thecla and Domnina, yeah. um, there, there's a lot more conversation in these chapters, 
we don't get the huge, long, rambling descriptions of the city the way we did in, you know, the last segment that we read where where we get the descriptions of, you know, all the different shops and, and Agi and Agilus's rag shop and the cathedral yeah, the and, shop. you know. Um, we don't get that sort of thing here. The The focus of the story zooms in a lot more on Severian and Agia and how they're interacting with each other. There's this ongoing sort of um, like tug of war of desire. Where like Severian's clearly very horny and is into Agia. And Agia here is like, like despite Severian being horny, he's not making any moves. And Agia has to like beg him to kiss her at one point. She's, you know, she's like, kiss me. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, what? What's and and she has to say, kiss me now. This is probably gonna be your last opportunity. You're gonna die tonight. You know, and uh and they have a conversation about like basically Agia starts going off about like how the sun wrinkles your skin and it and it reveals your flaws, and Severian thinks about how really like revealing the flaws in Agia is, is making her seem more real and, and thus more attractive to him. But then they get to the yep. gardens and Agia is like, Hey, let's go to the garden of delectation where we can bang. And Severian's like, uh, no, let's go. Like, like he keeps getting distracted despite the fact that we know he's like really into her. Um, and so we, we get this really interesting dynamic between the two of them. And that's the whole focus of this except when he shifts into like lore and we do get some lore dumps like the pelerines and father Inire's mirrors and Boy, the description of of what is going on in the garden of endless sleep with this lake that people are dumped in and marked on a map but apparently they the bodies move around and like there are manatees that come in and try to eat the bodies and and some bodies like get <laughs> swept out into the the river Gyal in Nessus, and like, and this dude's been searching for his dead wife for fifteen or more years, you know, pickled like, people, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but but yeah, it, it is like I I think these are more intimate chapters in terms of the feel and and the pace here like slows down a lot where it's. It's much more human. It doesn't have the kind of epic quest feel that some of the early chapters did after Severian left the Citadel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this was uh, quite quite the read for me. I mean, I managed to, admit to do this in a day because we are taking these in such smaller chunks here. Um, I Regarding this, this scene, there's this dynamic between Severian and Agia. I am getting a little bit frustrated in the same way that I was getting frustrated with, uh, and I don't, I don't want to make this an actual comparison. I'm just saying it was the same kind of frustration at first uh-huh. um, that I had with a particular, well, with the main character in the Night Angel trilogy, whose name does not come to mind at the moment, just because Severian is so inwardly, and because it's inwardly, he is so um, obvious with, to us, returning to the how horny he is it's it's a constant beat where he's he's always returning and i'm always trying to read this from everybody's point of view from a general point of view and i'm thinking it's like this is here we go another teenage boy who just cannot get his mind out of the gutter (laughs) but then i was quickly proven wrong on that severian completely flipped that on me and it was a delight because i was preparing myself for this 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 erotically charged 
uh, slog through a whole section of this book with which we're going to be with Agia. But no, no, Severian, despite the fact that he's very much still um, compelled by his hormones, it's what it's what it is around that, what the exceptions to that are, that really kind of start to, to draw the edges of who Severian is for me because of his curiosity. When he's inside the Botanic Gardens, he is someone completely else, somebody completely yeah. different. And it's somebody who allows us to explore this world quite a bit more and I'm loving every page of it. I mean, I, I wish I could spend another 10 chapters inside the Botanic Gardens. Oh, I know. Like, we, we get references to a few other gardens that, of course, we never get to see. And I'm like, man, I, I want to see what's in the Garden of Antiques or the Garden of Delectation. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that, yeah. those sound like crazy, you know. And, and even then, we get this very short scene in the Garden of Sand. And I almost think that's the most compelling scene of them all no because it's... There's just nothing in there. And yet Severian is Severian's so entranced that he loses like, like yes. hours. You know, like all, all yeah. he sees is, is like a thorned bush. And and then it he just like gets lost in the endless, trackless I waste. And I feel like there's a magical reason for that. Like why time is affecting his consciousness differently than than the average person. Because he's already reacting differently than a lot of people would in the botanic gardens. So Agia certainly thinks so. She tells him mm-hmm. that when father Nire had the, uh, the botanic gardens built, he put conjurations on the gardens and that some people are trapped in these magic spells. Uh, and that is something that, uh, is up to some, up for some debate. Uh, Agia thinks that Robert and Marie and Isangoma are such people who have been trapped by the spell and have been like subsumed into playing a role in the jungle garden because of Father Anire's spell. I'm not sure. I think I that's that. the case. I like the time travel weirdness. Yeah. I really like that. And and not only time travel necessarily, but location travel because this book takes place in. South America and judging by the language, uh, Tokoloshi is an African spirit. That's an, uh, an African myth. Uh, yeah. I, uh, looked it up all my, all my new words I have, uh, definitions for, and half of them actually come from the, uh, lexicon earthist. Did I get the name correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I, uh, I found a, a, a copy online that had a lot of the lexicon earth is on it. Yeah. This is Zulu Zosa mythology, Tokoloshi. Yeah, uh, I will. I will warn you. Uh, if you're looking up Lexicon Earthus definitions, there will be spoilers. Oh, um, oh, okay. Yeah. There, <laughs> some All of right. the. I should have thought of that. Yeah, some of the. Uh, um, some of the entries have commentary on the story and like theories from Michael Andre Driussi on what's going on. And uh, and he brings in stuff from the later books and even things from the other Solar Cycle trilogies, like the Book of the Long Sun and Book of the Short Sun. Uh, but but yeah, the so the Jungle Garden, yeah, it it could be that this is just a recreation of something from Africa. It could be time travel and geographic travel to Africa in the 1900s. Uh, Similarly, the Garden of Endless Sleep 
Um, so the Avern, right, that word comes from Avernus, which is uh, a lake in Italy. And uh, this, uh, so the actual Lake Avernus is uh, uh, like in, in real life, it's, it's like a poisonous lake, like a sulfurous. There's like really, oh, really? nasty fumes and stuff in, in mythology or maybe not, not Italy, uh, Rome, um, uh, uh, hey, not, not, potato. not Rome, but the tomato, Greek. tomato. Uh, I don't I actually don't remember now. I'd have to look it up, but it's, it's the, like the entrance to the underworld in Greek mythology. Um, and of course Italy, we yep. see, you know, we see some of that thematic, nature playing out here where this is a, a, a lake in which dead bodies are stored. Um, uh, but yeah, the, uh, the name of Ernest means like the, the lake with no birds, uh, because of the fumes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. If, if like, I mean, that's terrifying, yeah. but it's also awesome etymologically speaking. Um, and there, and so there is somewhat of a possibility that when they go through this door into the garden of endless sleep, that they are actually being transported to Lake Avernus. Cause we also have this ongoing mystery where Agi is like, Oh, you know, there's like weird things with the mirrors and, and the, the glass. So it makes it look a lot bigger. But even then Severian's like, I don't see the walls anywhere. And, and we're left with this question of, are there actually walls surrounding this or have we moved somewhere to an open sky? And we get the story about Domnina where it's like, yes, we, we find out there's some weird things going on with mirrors, but these mirrors can be used to transport people greater than the speed of light. I actually like that. I normally yeah. complain a little bit about, well, you know, science fiction, like especially far future science fiction, trying to tackle things. But, and I have obviously had my complaints recently, but this one totally fine with me. I, I really like this, um, mysterious approach to faster than light travel and using mirrors and the 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 ruminations on approaching the speed of light and gaining mass and energy as you do so and and it was very creative i liked it it was just vague enough that i had zero problems with it uh it was it was good <laughs> it was kind of creepy actually and i liked it creepy in the uh big world building sense i just it's just oh like, yeah oh. i definitely think uh, especially the story as told by thecla where oh, these God. are young girls, you know, like Father Anire comes across as a scary figure. Yep. Yeah. Father Anire and Severian story about Thecla's story of Domnina. So it's like. And I love uh, how yeah. he's like talking out loud and Agi is like, yep. you know, you're muttering to yourself right now. He's like, I'm just telling yeah. myself a story. You didn't seem like you were interested you didn't want in to hear hearing it. it. So I'm just going to, but I wanted to hear it. So I'm going to yeah. hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. loved that moment. It was nice. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of interesting things happening in this part, though. Oh, God. Oh, oh yes. Hmm. So, well, uh, further style points, or shall we go into our language portion of the episode? Um, yeah, we can, we can move into the language portion. You sound like you're going to finish that sentence. What's up? Uh, I'm, I'm just making sure that I don't have any notes. Now, well, yeah, we can, we can move into the language portion. Sweet. 
Um, regarding how I how I said a lot of my definitions come from the Lexicon Earthus, I wasn't actually specifically looking up the de- the Lexicon Earthus. What was happening, okay. and this is kind of funny, is that I was looking up these words, and the top returns were of Gene Wolfe because they're just so hard <laughs> to find elsewhere. Yeah. For example, uh, the I guess the first one I'll start with today. Uh, where was it? Started with the G. Uh, Godily, Gaudily. It's a three-pointed fish spear. Apparently, it's of Scottish origin. I think the word is. Oh. At least it sounded like it. No, I don't think it actually was. But um, yeah, G O W D A L I E. It's a fish spear. That was the one that I had looked up, and I just I couldn't find it anywhere except returns for the lexicon Earthus. I think that was the one. Oh so, yeah, of course. That happened that's, quite a that's few from um, uh, Isengoma's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and like that's a really good example of one of these crazy words where like. You, if you just looked at the word "godily," nobody in the world would have any idea what this word is. But we're given enough context from the story when he says, "And so he took up his godily and went to yep. a certain pool." You're like, "Okay, this is a, a fishing spear." You know, I was or, thinking or, at first I thought a net, but then he was talking about uh, uh, actually doing it. So I was oh, okay, made a little more sense after that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I still want to. I still like to look them up because I I, I worry that I'm even going to miss some sort of extra meaning some sort of extra connection that's going to inspire me or, or at least open some more doors in the future for consideration in the story. I'm just, I'm always ready for everything. I'm casting a wide net myself, proverbially speaking. Yeah. I feel like in general, the names you're going to find more value in looking up the names than you are like these crazy vocabulary words. Mm. Um, like Cause the names Robert are where <laughs> he hides <laughs> a lot of, uh, clues to the nature of characters. You know, like I, I talked about last episode with Dr. Talos and Baldanders where they, you know, their names hide information about them. Like Dr. Talos is not immediately, obviously a robot, but when you know, (laughs) you know, like once you put together where the name Talos comes from and some of these descriptions about how he has gold teeth and that he uses shadows to make expressions appear to play across his face. You're like, oh, and Severian's like, in a more profound reality, he is a fox's mask upon a wall. You know, his face is a mask upon a wall, not not actually a fox's face. It's it's a mask of a fox. You know, and so you can put these things together and figure things out. And, and so, yeah, like the names, I think, are, are worth looking up. And even, even when it's like, you know, just a saint's name, like, you're going to learn some, like, cool trivia, historical trivia, you know? <laughs> yeah, like I just said, I, I noticed a Robert this week. I'm like, huh? That's a remarkably uh, modern name, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> Robert, and there was, um, did they did they name the uh, the female archaeologist as well? I forget. Marie. Marie. Well, that's, that's a far more traditional name. That one yeah. goes back at least a few centuries, as far as I know. But yeah, that was, uh, that was really cool. Yep. I had I it took me far too long by the way to pick up on what was actually happening in that scene with the archaeologists uh, and the uh, the native there uh Isengoma. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, for me it was uh it was the line where they talked about didn't you hear them? Didn't you feel the vibration when you were telling your story? That was them entering the hut. I think it was. And that was the moment I had where it was slow eyes widening <laughs> going, "Oh my god, it took me so long to pick this up. I need to text Drew. Oh my god." But yeah, yeah, oh, that seems oh, crazy. It's still a blast. Despite the pace, it's still a blast to be reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next word, champagne. Oh. Not champagne, but champagne. 
took me a few Google searches to try and get Google to, to lay off trying to autocorrect it to Champagne. But this is a <laughs> large area of open countryside that is level or with mild undulation. Nice. Not spelled C H A M P A I N. Bell fries. I didn't know what a bell fry was. I'm uh, actually a lot of these words sorry. today are going to be how did, embarrassing for me. How did you spell that? C H A M P A I N. Is did I get it's it wrong? P I A N. It's champion. My dyslexia is going to be hitting again and again. This was a big yeah. issue for us last week. I forget what the word was. Um, oh, monocomy. Mono. Uh, yeah, that's right. Monomaki. Uh, I thought it was monocomy, but it was. Uh, oh, what was it again? Monomaki. Monomaki, that's it. Sorry, I was talking when you had said that, and I'm, I have a lot of voices, so I, was, yeah. I drowned it. Yeah, monomaki. Uh, bell fries, or bell fry, singular. Structure oh, enclosed bell in bells. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, bell fries. Yeah, it's I like that singular I like is bell free. Yeah. What? Oh, no, I don't like that. I take that back. <laughs> but this is a structure enclosing bells for ringing, mm-hmm. and it's part of a building, usually at the top. I look it up, I see a picture of it, go, oh, that's what that is. Cool. Yeah. That's definitely one uh, that I've known for a long time, thanks to being Catholic. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, I didn't know before today what an eponym was. I swear. Huh. Eponyms. Uh, a person after whom a discovery, invention, or place, etc. is named or thought to be named. And it makes sense because I've read again and again the word eponymous, and I've heard the context with it, and I already kind of had the context going into it, but I decided I actually don't know the strict definition for this one. So I looked it up. I'm being completely open here, everybody. My vocabulary <laughs> is not as wide as you think. <laughs> hey, that's what Wolf is for. Yeah. You, know, you go back Polis. to those, uh, you know, the, the how to read Gene Wolf list from Neil Gaiman. <laughs> the final one on that list is be willing to learn. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely willing. <laughs> I'm willing to get good for lack of a better term, since I've already, uh, you know, made the analogy between this and uh, Dark Souls <laughs> as well. Tholus or Tholus. I want to say Tholus. T-H-O-L-U-S. This is a small domical mountain or hill. I'm assuming it's also pronounced domical, even though it's part- spelled D-O-M-I-C-A-L because... Domicile. Dome. Domicile. Dom- what? D- D-O-M-I-C-A-L? Oh, C A L or C I L? Sorry, sorry. I yeah, D O M I C A L. But that was just part of the. I C A. Uh, okay, that's a different word than the one that I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, I'm assuming it is just describing the general shape of a dome. Oh, then yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a yeah. circular domed building or structure, a dome, cupola. A. Lamp. I can see how you would immediately go to domicile on that one, though. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much related. Uh, see here. Interesting. Yeah, I did not know that word. I loved this description of the magenta-breasted cyanus-backed parrot. Oh, yeah. That was very nice. This is cerulean or of a dark blue. I never heard yep. that before. It was very nice. Um, <laughs> a few in a row here that all got tossed at me in one sentence. Subrets, columbines, corophies, harlequinas, and figurantes. Figurantes. Hmm. Harlequinas, and these are all flowers, yes. Yeah, so well, the first one, uh, Subret, actually my, uh, that's how I want to pronounce it, Subret, even though it ends with the T-E-S, that's just my French background. Um, this is a supposedly an actress playing a lively flirta- uh, flirtatious role, although I imagine it has uh. multiple definitions. Uh, Columbine, yeah, type of perennial flower. Corophies, I got 
a Columbine conductor. is the state flower of Colorado. Oh, really? Oh, we have yeah. the trillium here in Ontario. Uh, Corophies. Corophy. A conductor or leader of a chorus or drama. That's the return that I went with, even though I had several, because it matched the first one, which is an actress. Um, oh, I didn't look up actually the last two. Sorry, I just got those first three, and I kind of let the rest uh, of the sentence well, run. Uh, Harlequin, I mean, that, you know. Harlequin itself, but this yeah. is Harlequinus, or Harlequinus. H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N-A-S. Mm-hmm. But you, like, Flower? you can get the the idea from... Right, you know, from the uh, from the root word, you know, mm. and then uh, these are all thrown in one sentence. So I just wrote them all down and assumed I was going to look them all up later. Yeah, and then figurantes are female extras in a theatrical production or okay, female so spear we're, we're talking, carriers. Yeah, drama plays. Okay, yeah. So it's it's there's definitely a theme. Yeah, uh, but yeah, interesting. Those <laughs> godly. <laughs> I've already said that. Hesperorn. Yeah. H-E-S-P-E-R-O-R-N. This is a prehistoric fish-eating ostrich. Nice. <laughs> nice. I <laughs> uh, loved it. Same again. Next one. Oreodont. I, I saw daunt. I figured, okay. Oh, teeth? yeah. Something to do with teeth. Uh, Oreo. Okay. So I, I didn't know what to make of that. But yeah, I was pretty close. An extinct superfamily of prehistoric uh, cud-chewing artiodactyls with uh, short faces and canine-like teeth. Cud chewing artiodactyls, by the way, is a very awesome <laughs> set of words itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah the uh, um, Lexicon Earthus entry for that says a plant eating prehistoric animal about the size of a sheep. Yeah, yeah, it looked like it. It kind of looked like um, a large capybara or a, a very very small hippopotamus when I saw the paintings or the the, <laughs> the artist renditions of it. Um, nice wakaris, U A K A R I S, a common name for monkeys of the genus. Uh, I'm going to pronounce this one, try and pronounce this one with my Portuguese roots. Cacao. Uh, C-A-C-A-J-A-O. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Short-tailed monkeys. Marge, or Marge. Probably maybe Marge, actually, because it's a wild cat native to Central and South America. I thought it was going to be a bird. Sorry, Marge. I want to say Marge. Yeah, Marge. Tokolosh. How did you pronounce that again? Tokolosh? Tokolosh? Uh... Uh, I don't know if I like had a pronunciation in my head to be honest, because I don't like I don't read like Zuluzosa. Um, what's what's the term for it? Like when I read, I don't like subvocalize. Yeah, a so, dwarf-like water sprite. T o k o tokoloshi maybe I would say tokoloshi. I would love if it was like tokolok or tokolok or not. That'd be dumb. Well, it's s h e. Yeah, not c h e. Yeah, but you know, lock. In like Scottish Gaelic is L O C H E, isn't it? No, this is S H E, not C H E. Oh, oh, it's S H E. Yes. How did I misspell that? Okay. Yeah. My apologies, everyone. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna try and pronounce this next one too. It should be simple on paper. Um, Anacrisis from ancient Greece, the stage in the judicial process in which all of the evidence is produced prior to the trial. All right, let me look this up. A-N-A-C-R-I-S-I-S. Uh, anacrisis, I would say. That's what I wanted to say, too. But it felt awkward to say it, to pronounce it that way. Yeah, preliminary hearing or interrogation accompanied by torture. Oh, wow. That's slightly different for this context in this book. Interesting. 
a dark lake in an infinite fen. I had no idea what fen was. Oh a yeah, like a swamp wetland. Yeah, that relies on groundwater input and requires thousands of years to develop. I love the 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 discovery and the liberal use of the word sedge. I that is mm-hmm. my new favorite word for this week. A genus of more than two thousand species of grass-like plants. It's just foliage, just basic shrub like grass, basically. But uh, yeah. it was awesome. Sedge here. I think we got three sedges in this. Uh, we did. We had a lot of sedge. <laughs> Yeah. I hate this next one because my French is really arguing with me here. Uh, <laughs> cloisonne work. C-L-O-I-S-O-N-N-E. Accent. I want to say that's circumflex. That's not circumflected. That's yeah, not I mean, I'm sure there's Whatever a the third one is. proper French pronunciation. It's not circumflex I... and it's not argue. It's one of the three. Uh, I've decorative always heard work it. In which... yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I've always heard it as cloisonne. It's probably the uh, anglicized, yeah correct way to say it uh, decorative work in which enamel glass or gemstone is separated by straps of flattened wire placed edgewise on a metal backing or edgeways on a metal backing yep yeah so it's yep, like yep. you know, wire and gem encrusted decorations yeah it's pretty cool and past that it was just a bunch of screaming over the creepiness and the horror factor of our last few pages specifically the last few paragraphs you know uh first he tumbled in the water and then he which was oh god pickled people water and then there was oh god Mm -hmm. he's dropped the sword oh no and then there's the hand and the pulling him down and i check out at that point i love the description at the end there where um right as he grabs the sword the hand grabs him and it happens at the same time so he has this he describes it as lunatic gratitude because he has this impression that the hand has given him his sword back. Yes. And then he realizes, Oh crap, it's pulling me down. Like that's the only thing you could do there as a writer. There's no way that hand just stays there and he swim away. (laughs) Of course that hand grabs you and brings you down. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. This was Ah, one where I I was trying to decide whether to have us end at this chapter or the next chapter. And I was like, no, no, we got to end here. My friend, yeah. <laughs> you absolutely made the right choice. Yeah. So one of those that's my language section for today. Yeah. Uh like we uh you know, w- when we're doing our normal book episodes where we split it into two, we typically end on a, a good solid cliffhanger, you know, like w- just the way books tend to be structured around the 50% mark is going to be some big event that happens and leaves us hanging, you know? Uh, And so breaking it down into more, you know, bite-sized chunks in, in this book, uh, even if it is quite a mouthful to, to chew on why we're having like hour and a half episodes on three to four chapters. Um, But I, I was interested to see how often to really pay attention, you know, how often he leaves us on just a full on cliffhanger uh, because Wolf isn't doing normal structure here. Like, I know, Rob, you've complained in the past about, like, how some authors will end, like, every single chapter on a cliffhanger. And you're like, like, I don't need that kind of thing to keep me reading. Like, yeah, I'm already engaged with the book. there are certain sequences where it's again and again and again for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it can get frustrating when you do it every single time. 
Uh, I think I remember and, Firefight was like that for the first few chapters by Brandon Sanders, and I, that may have been the episode. If I'm thinking about which book hmm. it was, I'm thinking it had been Firefight. That one starts with a few uh, cliffhangers. It, it does, yeah. It does. Sorry, um, I just like, I'm just, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's like with Wolf here, even though he's doing something very different with this book, he, he isn't going to avoid giving us a cliffhanger every once in a while. And I think here it's really important that he does it because, like I said, the pace and the action really slows down in these chapters and it becomes much more about the the kind of character moments. And then he throws in this like sudden shock of, you know, at the end of this chapter, at the end of a four chapter or five chapter sequence where like there hasn't, it's been a lot of walking and talking, you know, and now we, we have something to spike the blood pressure again. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, shall we go into our character, uh, discussion specifically? Is there anything new that we want to talk about or shall we just about Severian? Or do you have any other uh, language points you want to get into? Any? Um, mm, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide how much I want to tell you and how much I want you to try to figure out yourself. Mm. <laughs> Keep in mind, it takes me a lot longer than I want to admit to catch on to things like, oh, uh, Dr. Talos is a robot. And by a lot longer, I mean I had to wait until you informed me. Well, that. look, like that's not <laughs> no. an easy one to pick up on. Like I, yeah. I didn't realize he was a robot until like much later. <laughs> mm. uh, but I, I okay. also, when I was reading this, I only knew one other person who'd read these books and I wasn't unless talking it, with him as I went through them. Unless something you know. is specifically spelled out for me, assume I do not know. Yeah. But there, like, there are some things, like there's a mystery that is set up in these chapters, and I'm trying to decide whether I want to key you in on some right. of the hints or, that you should be keeping in mind. Or even if you give me a hint, what magnitude of hint, what's going to yeah. lead me down too soon of a path or too quick of a... Okay, I get that. I get mm-hmm. that. Well, think about it then. You don't have to do it today. I would, I would I love to be teased. Well, you know me. Okay, yeah, before we, but, before we move into characters then... Uh, Let's talk about chapter titles because we actually haven't ch- talked about chapter titles in quite a while now. Uh, we talked oh, about nice. it a bit in the first episode of and how um, how Wolf likes to kind of hide puzzles in his chapter titles and uses double meanings and things like that. Um, but the uh, the four chapter titles we covered here, of course, the Botanic Gardens, it's very straightforward. Father Anire's Mirrors, and that one, you know, there's the straightforward kind of idea of like, oh, this is where he talks about Father Nire's mirrors. But you could also look at it in the sort of hidden meaning where Father Nire's mirrors may be literally time traveling them <laughs> as they enter these gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the hut in the jungle, again, like that's fairly straightforward. But then our final chapter is called Dorcas. Yeah. And, and we never, that is the only time in this chapter that that title shows up. I didn't even know that's, I didn't even realize that you're right. I, I, I was subconsciously looking for it the entire time. I didn't realize we never got it because of the events at the end. They completely shook me free of that expectation. Yeah. Uh, which I find a fascinating choice. Like I know why this chapter is titled Dorcas because I've read these already. 
but my first time through i was just like what i am so confused like is this a real word you know like is this it's it's the rambling old man's name who's looking for his wife so or maybe it's his wife's name so he he uh does say his his wife's wife's name Cass. Cass, cass yeah i just remembered that yeah um but dorcas uh is a biblical name uh it is another name for tabitha from the bible uh oh. a widow and disciple at joppa in the first century she died of illness but was resurrected by saint peter yeah okay and so connection in this chapter but i will think yeah, on that it's it's a uh, very interesting that he titled this chapter what he did. Like most chapter titles here have a straightforward explanation where you're like, okay, I get that meaning. And then <gasps> often there is a second meaning hidden underneath it. You know, like I uh, just got another idea. Oh, oh, uh, the sand garden, this presence he felt in the sand garden, the one that wasn't there, the, the woman that wasn't there concealed. I just, I just had another. Okay, sorry. I'm just throwing again, a casting a wide net, yeah, thinking yeah. out loud. Oh, um, but yeah. So like you, you have multiple meanings to some of these, to many of these chapter titles, and then here, even, even a basic meaning is not immediately obvious. So, yeah. And then next, next week uh, in these when we go through the chapters, the meaning of this chapter will become clear. Okay. Okay. Uh, But we will also go back to chapter titles that just upfront make sense. Like you read the chapter and you're like, okay, yeah, I get why that's titled that. Uh, So, Hmm. so yeah, that was, that was kind of my last, my last style point. But again, like, like I said, you know, this is, this chapter title sort of like a a fun little mystery where it's, and, and it, I think it's in theme with what Wolf is doing in these chapters where they're very disorienting. Like Severian is disoriented in all three of the gardens he goes into. He loses track of time, apparently just staring at like a thorned bush in an endless desert in one garden. And then he's like muttering to himself and is being viewed as like an evil spirit from the future by uh, these people in a hut. And, and, uh, and he's enamored of this conversation to the point where Agia is like getting upset with him because she's like, come on, let's go, let's get out of here. And he won't do it. And then he comes here and he's disoriented again when he finds himself in the lake and he's tangled up in his mantle. And then he drops Terminus Est and he's freaking out because he's having flashbacks to his near drowning at the beginning of the story when the giant woman under the water that he saw like, it saved him yeah. and like and and so there's a lot of disorientation in these chapters and then the chapter title feeds into the disorientation for you as a reader where you're like man what is going on at this point you know yeah yeah it's really a a mind f- for life i'm sorry for making you censor <laughs> that one again future drew but it's uh I feel comfortable calling it that going forward. It's really fun. It's 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 really exciting because I have I never know how Gene Wolfe is going to bend my expectation next. Yeah. Or or open a door next that I've never seen that I didn't know was there. I hadn't spotted yet. It's 
so actually oh. let's let's talk about before we go into characters let's talk about uh the averns the averns yeah uh okay yes. so you haven't you you've heard about them a lot now haven't seen them yet are they supposedly the the combat tools yeah here these flowers but we this chapter Dorcas opens with when I had first heard of the flower, I had imagined Averns would be grown on benches in rows like those in the conservatory of the Citadel. Later, when Agia had told me more about the botanic gardens, I conceived of a place like the Necropolis, where I had frolicked as a boy with trees and crumbling tombs and walkways paved with bones. And then he goes into the, you know, the reality was very different and he describes the Garden of Endless Sleep, but he doesn't describe the flowers yet. All you know yep. is that this is a flower and Agia tells him, you know, they're really dangerous. He says, they don't look dangerous from here. And she replies, they've done for a great many people. I can assure you some of them are interred in this garden, I imagine. And, and so you're left with the idea of like, this is a flower that they're going to fight a duel with. Like, yeah. you know what? <laughs> But apparently it's a dangerous flower and they planted them to like kill manatees that <laughs> invade the lake. <laughs> like, it's again, really, really just weird where the world feels alien. When you think of the idea of a duel to the death, you're like, oh, you know, a, a sword fight or pistols at dawn or, you know, something like that. And it's like, no, 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 we're going to fight with flowers. Yeah, this is interesting. I want to be yeah. <laughs> And it's I, a flower I, I, named after a lake, named after the, or that in Greek mythology was the entrance to the underworld. <laughs> what if it's like a psychedelic flower and you both get transported into this alternate reality where your minds do battle? Like a matrix kind of thing, but psychedelically uh, evoked or invoked. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. I, I really can't even. There has to well, be something going on. If, if they start fighting with a bunch of limp flowers, I'm out. That's it. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, let me let me double check. I I'm not sure if we're gonna get there next week. We are. We are going to see what's up with the Averns good. next week. Okay. Good. So, yeah, we'll return to that conversation. Good. Good. But, good. Okay. Uh, Characters. Let's talk about characters. Let's talk about Severian. Yeah. How you I feeling? Mean, the the weekly check in. The weekly check in. I mean, I, I've explained a little bit already. He's he's annoyingly horny to read. Um, but besides, you know, that being allowable as a quirk of character, of course. I I I don't know. I mean, I'm still waiting for a reason to be invested in Severian. I'm still waiting for a reason to work, uh, to root for him. I should say that I'm not seeing them yet, but I realize they're going much slower than we normally do. I'm not like growing frustrated <laughs> with it yet. I fully realize that we're still in the beginning paces of this book and this series, of course. So, mm -hmm. um, it definitely hasn't plummeted. It definitely hasn't dropped any. Uh, I'm just still waiting with bated breath to find my reason to, uh, fully jump into him and root for him. Yeah, uh, so I don't know how much you remember of our our like hundredth episode special when we talked about our favorite and least favorite characters. I think I listened to it again recently. I think. Yeah, uh, but that Pat and I both had Severian on our favorite characters. Oh, list. I definitely remember that. 
I had I had mixed up which list he was on. I thought he was one of your most hated, and he turned out he's like one of your uh, most loved. Yeah, yeah, and and a big part of why both Pat and I like his character is that he he's a character that explores just through his journey the idea of redemption and whether redemption is possible that Severian is not a good person, but he is a person who is going on a journey that may or may not end in redemption. And there is a great deal of debate in uh, among people who've read the book of the new son, whether or not they think Severian is redeemed from the person he begins as because yeah, like he was raised in hor- in a horrible setting that taught him to be a callous person who tortures people. And we've already seen uh, how he has some, not only some very uh, problematic, to say the least, uh, attitudes toward women, but also problematic attitudes toward a lot of different things in life. That he goes on this philosophical, philosophical rambling about how every interaction in the world can be related to a torturer and a victim that you torture everything through interacting with it. You know, we, we talked about that passage a few episodes ago. And so he, he has, he does bad things. I mean, we talk about his journey to the house Azure early on. And when he, the, the kind of illusion is shattered that he's not actually going to be sleeping with Thecla, that this is just some woman who, looks like Thecla and his first inclination is to raise his hand to beat her and he stops. She, she like panics and talks him down, but there are even moments with Agia here where he gets angry at Agia and he, he wants to hit her, you know, there. And at the same time, he's like talking about how much he's in love with Agia and, and we see these twisted relationships that he has with the world. Because of his upbringing, it feels yeah. very childish. Like he, like he, we, we had so many um, discussions, or we had at least a lengthy discussion about how how many times we're we're returning to the theme of coming of age. In the first part, mm-hmm. I think it was, "You're not a man until you do this," or "I was a man once I did that." But go, but still, he he keeps de- ex- like uh, exhibiting just what it is about him that's still ruled by the child. I I feel inside a lot. Of this feels very. Um, uh, the spur of the moment a lot of this feels very i don't know immature and impulsive yeah. that's what i was and looking it is. for he, he i mean this is a, a guy of... who's who's taking his he's been outside of the citadel for two days at this point in oh his yeah entire deservedly life, so you know? yeah yeah he is, is no surprise that he's turned out and 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 continues to exhibit this behavior mm-hmm. but it still feels like for me there's still so much growing up to do and i don't know there is. Feels there is a lot of growing up in some ways, despite his what seven foot stature, you know, and his intimidating. Well, he's presence. not seven feet tall yet, but not yet. Mm. Yeah, that's right. He's still what sixteen at this point. He's got a few years. Yeah, left. he's pretty young. Mm. Um. Yeah. Well, who yeah. knows? Uh. But let's talk about Agia. Yeah. Okay. I want to like Agia. I don't yet. I don't hate her. I don't. I don't really dislike her. I want to like Agia, but she seems so too open i mean and i get that yeah she understands that severian is likely or she at least assumes that severian is going to be dying in the next few hours but i mean i don't know 
she like her 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 robe gets torn just exposing one breast she's totally fine with it and i'm thinking okay maybe she's just very comfortable she, she comes from a different culture perhaps she's fine she's a free spirit for lack of a better term but then the old man surprises them and she immediately covers up so it's like no this is just this is just for severian I, she seems to very much understand her effect on him and hey power to her i just I don't know. I'm, I'm still waiting for for something more, and I, it's probably there. There's probably these layers of character um, in and around her dialogue that I'm just not picking up on a first quick read. Yep. Um, I'm assuming I'm missing some, so I definitely don't. I'm not going to say, "Oh, Agia is a character I don't like." I just I'm still waiting. Or I'm trying to find what's there to really bring her more, bring her into my. I don't know reading experience sure. as a multi-dimensional character rather than who she is at the moment. So She's explaining things. And- one of the things that, you know, I think is worth thinking about and talking about in these chapters is like you said, she has this open sexuality around Severian, but is much more reserved. Like she, she does not have a good time when she strip searched by the Pelerines. And she comments on it afterward to Severian where she's like, you know, it's, it's kind of weird talking about this with you, like about like virgins, basically, with you right after you've seen me naked. She's like, if it had been in different circumstances, maybe it would be more comfortable for me. But like that, no, like this feels weird. You know, mm. that you can see that she's willing to be sexually open with Severian. Um, who she met today, a few yeah, hours exactly, ago. Exactly. Who she just met this morning. And she's like badgering him to go to the Garden of Delectation so they can yeah. have sex. And you have to wonder, like, why is she so, like, why does she have this attitude towards Severian and seems to show a very different side to nudity and sexuality around other people? Mm-hmm. What is it about Severian? Severian? What is it about their yeah. relationship as it has developed since this morning that is causing right. her to do this? I don't know. You would expect if she was, if she has the capability to just be this open with somebody. And again, we have it deserves acknowledging that she's assuming Severian's going to die. She's not worrying about a future and what, you know, impression, like first impressions, first impressions and last impressions, she assumes are the same for Severian this day. Um, but I don't know. I just, yeah. it deserves, re- I'm, I'm assuming I mean, I'm going it's, to find It's even worth asking, like, wh- why does she bother going out into the city with him? Why doesn't she just tell him, oh, you need to go pick an avern from the Botanic Gardens to do this mm-hmm. duel. See ya. I'm going to keep tending my shop with my brother here. Sure. You know, yeah. like this, that's a pretty Many big questions about Agia. There, there could be, you know, questions of money. I mean, she, she talks about like, you know, uh, how she wants Severian to buy her meals and they are poor. She talks about how poor they are, that she's like going off with Severian maybe just because she's like, Oh, if, if he dies, maybe I'll get to like steal his money after he's dead or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or he'll give me a gift before he dies if I have sex with him or something like that you know, a, a last wish sort of thing. Like there, there are lots of different um, possible motivations for what Agia is doing oh, and why she's acting this way. her brother was really, really anxious about that sword. Her brother did really want that sword. He really wanted that sword, suspiciously so. Suspiciously so, two negotiations lower. Yeah. So, huh. And I'd assume that he had some knowledge because of maybe his family or something like that. Questions. Well, now you know that the knowledge we get in these chapters where she talks about how poor they are recontextualizes that negotiation to where, you know, I was saying like he's offering a substantial amount of money 
because he knows the sword is worth a lot more than that. Yeah. And he's like, I, I like, I'll do six Kresos, but you'll have to give me time to get the money together. You know? Uh, but even that like says, you know, the fact that he's so desperate is like, this sword could be a godsend to them. If he, if he could swindle Severian into selling it for cheaper, they could in turn sell it and like live comfortably for the rest of their lives. Maybe, you know, uh, we, you know, we don't have a great idea of the, um, or is it strictly monetary? You know, cause he knows something but, about the sword. Hmm. I mean, that's what I asked the, the sword. The, the other thing they do note, uh, is that the sword was like made by a specific sword maker. Um, Agia like remarks on the, like the inscription on the blade. There's like a signature. Mm, I would love but, Terminus Est to turn out to have some sort of magical or, you know, technological ability that we don't know yet. I'm just, spe- I'm just throwing things <laughs> forward, but I would love to see it turn out that way. That's cool. Mm. But yeah. Uh, it's got mercy. So yeah. Agia, I think Agia is a really fascinating character overall. She is. Um, I, I appreciate how Wolf uses her as a, an enigma as a character <laughs> and as, as somebody for Severian to play off of sort of, sort of as a foil for Severian and as a foil for other characters, as you'll see as we move through. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's about all I had for characters this week though. Cause Same. mostly it is just Severian and Agia talking. Um, uh, but we yeah. can head into some miscellaneous stuff. Uh, let's see here. I talked about uh, how I actually liked the uh, the scientific implications there. Uh, there were, t- I believe, I believe, at one point that Father Inire was referencing destructive interference with electromagnetic waves when they they when an electromagnetic wave meets at a hundred and eighty degree uh, differential in uh, wave height or what the hell is it called? I forget the actual terminology for it, but I'm pretty sure it's destructive interference. Out of okay. phase, that's it. I just, I, I, oh, and the implications for light speed travel. I, I that was cool. That's a little beyond my <laughs> understanding, or way beyond it. Uh, but yeah. it was, uh, it was, it was really cool to to still see this returning theme of yes, we're this far in the future, and there are things that this that, that mankind figured out perhaps millions of years past that we have yet to figure out today. Um, I'm, I'm slowly getting more and more comfortable with that idea and it's opening a lot more enjoyment for me in this book it was kind of getting in the way uh not in a major way just in a minor kind of nitpicky way but it's definitely growing on me now i like it good i'm i'm glad um uh, but speaking of father Anire, yes this uh dude let's talk about his name okay again Inire. names I have no idea names what are this fun is. Inire is the infinitive form of to begin or to enter in Latin. Okay. Okay. I will keep that in mind then, if we're just going to leave it there. Yeah. Initiation or beginning. Okay. Okay. Could have even been a character point, perhaps. (laughs) Just to tease me with it. Oh, well. Uh... Let's see here. More miscellaneous. Oh, I didn't even... Well, I was going to say, never mind. That was really stupid. I was about to complain that I hadn't picked favorite scenes. That would have been really weird if I had. Let's see here. 
the water. Of course, I'm already, uh, the old man. I thought we were going to talk more about the old man, but he didn't give us more to talk about. Um, no. Yeah, he, he just kind of shows up and, and gives us a uh, an idea of what's going on in the lake and and then gives them directions. He's like, hey, yeah, there's another dude over there with a bigger boat. Go ask him for passage. He's a friend of mine. Ooh. Or maybe not a friend of mine, but we know each other. I found a reference that I want. I think I, I, I want to predict is going to become more uh, a mention that I, a detail I should say that's going to become a little more important in the future. Chapter nineteen, beginning of our reading today, Botanic Gardens, okay. the Botanic Gardens. That purple creeper you're so fond of. I met it growing wild on a hillside in Cobbler's Common, and then the curator explains that he's aware of it, and he says a roof pane. <laughs> of glass broken they lost spores i guess likely to do well now because all of its enemies are dead and the as dead as the disorders its leaves cured i think this foreshadowing i want to make that prediction i think this uh this purple creeper is going to and its um escape of lack of a better term quarantine there is going to be a a deal in the future Hmm. okay okay just stuck out to me as a stood out to me as a little detail so i'm gonna figure bring that up um, I may be done with my miscellaneous. Oh, I really appreciate, I love that you, you had made very brief mention earlier of Gene Wolfe uh, describing the sunlight or Severian describing the sunlight and highlighting imperfections on yeah. Agia. Um, this was actually my passage for today because I loved okay. that one so nice. much. And I have it here. This is again, Severian studying Agia. Agia's face was far from perfect now in the clear sunshine, but she had nothing to fear from it. My hunger fed at least as ravenously upon her imperfections. Mm-hmm. Such a good, such a good exchange. I, not exchange, sorry, but such a good, uh, I don't know, paragraph, description, everything. So lovely. Yeah. yeah. Well, my my passage of the week is the just these final lines in chapter 22 with Severian under the water. At the same instant, my other hand touched an object of a completely different kind. It was another human hand, and its grasp, for it had seized my own the moment I touched it, coincided so perfectly with the recovery of Terminus Est that it seemed the hand's owner was returning my property to me, like the tall mistress of the Pellerines. I felt a surge of lunatic gratitude, then fear returned tenfold. The hand was pulling my own, drawing me down. That is just a hell of a way to end a chapter. You don't even need to give anybody context for that. You just put those those two or three paragraphs yeah. right there anywhere. And the person, the next comment you're going to get is, what is this? I need more of this. What is happening? Yeah, exactly. Everything you need to, to build up the tension and to, to build this cliffhanger right there is, ah, it's such an efficient uh, use of, of, of of language it's, so, it's, it's also just, beautiful like i i love some of the word choices lunatic gratitude i, I love, love that, that so phrase much. yeah and you know and and the way he sets it up by not just saying like oh i touched human flesh he starts off yeah. with a little bit of mystery an object of a completely different kind you know mm. uh, so 99.95 of the chapter in this slow burning exploration of, of of the entire garden of taking in everything the rambling of the old man's time is passing uh moments are passing like hours when you're reading this and it's great but then the last few paragraphs suddenly crank everything to eleven thousand. it's just the choice there to, to really bring that in is 
Ah, the man is a master of, of uh, pacing, I feel. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that, actually. Because um, it doesn't feel because jarring. Because generally it speaking... It's organic. Yeah, like, a lot of the time that we talk about pacing on this podcast, it's because uh, things are slow. You know, like, we talk about pacing with Brandon Sanderson a lot. It's one of the most common criticisms of his books, you know, is that mm, he's got Sanderson. jarring pacing that for the first huge chunk of a book, it's really, really slow. And then you just get this crazy climax at the end, the, you know, the Sanderson avalanche and, and, and people like to pick apart. Oh, you know, like, I don't like how this book is paced. This, this segment is too slow. The beginning has too much exposition. This is boring. You know, but then, oh, by by the time you finish it, it's worth it. Here, pacing means something completely different because he's not telling, Wolf isn't telling the same kind of story as Sanderson. The pace of this story is built around the puzzle of the world. It is how, how much he can confuse and allure the, the reader and, and how how he can seed answers in there and how he can give you the pieces to answer your own questions, but he doesn't just spoon feed you the answers. This isn't, you know, there's a ton of world building in these chapters, but it's a very different sort of world building than someone like Brandon Sanderson does where he's laying out, having characters exposit about the way magic works or, or the history of a world or things like that. When when we're being told things by characters, like when Agia is describing the Pellerines, she's not really like giving us all that much information. A lot of the information we're getting is is from a very specific personal perspective on mythology. It's not a description of this is the way things are. It's this is what I've heard about X and Y and Z. And Severian comes back and he says, well, based on that, I feel like maybe A and B are actually the case, mm-hmm. you know, and we get conversations about it and, and we don't really get answers because the answers to that aren't the point, the way they're the point for Sanderson world building out like the magic of surge binding or, or Alamancy or something like that. So the pace here is all about structuring a grander puzzle and mystery. And there he does an excellent job. Like if, if, if you gave this book to a a standard Sanderson fan, this is a reason that I don't really recommend this book very often in Sanderson fan groups. It's like, I, I honestly don't think many Sanderson fans would like this. I don't think I would if I hadn't read past Sanderson for almost 200 episodes with you. Yeah, so I'm, like, I'm, I'm there with you. I think I agree with that. A lot of I people, when they're picking up a fantasy book, are looking for the action and excitement and magic and you know the awe of, oh my gosh, this is such a crazy scene. They're not reading it for, oh yeah, this, this dude is going to go for a walk through the city with a girl who helps run a rag shop to go pick a flower. Like, Yeah, right? wow. <laughs> yeah. Because that's that's the substance of what's happening in these chapters. They're walking through a city to go pick a flower. But the way Wolf tells the story is the engaging part of it. And that's why it's worth talking about these passages of the week. You know, that's the the beauty of the language and the, the, the beauty of the story 
is the action in a Gene Wolfe book. That's not to say there isn't ever any like literal action. You know, we this book opened with like a weird running battle in a foggy graveyard at the beginning where like some dude had a laser gun and mm-hmm. Severian killed a guy, you know. There there is action in these books, but it's not the point the way a lot of fantasy books center battles and duels and, you know, revenge and things like that. Especially, I mean, I'm just thinking the, the day we're recording this is June 28th. Uh, this is the day Locklands came out, uh, the oh, conclusion yeah, to the Founders trilogy by Robert Jackson Bennett. And like that book is like the exact opposite of everything that's happening in the book of the new sun, where it's like, you <laughs> only get these occasional moments to sit down and breathe Otherwise, it's just nonstop action, like nonstop battles and fights and insane magic yeah. and and Gundams and uh, <laughs> and nothing wrong with that. What a, yeah, what a yeah, fun it's episode just a very different record. kind of book. But, exactly, but yeah. So, uh, but I think that that's all I have for this segment. I want to make sure the same thing goes for me. I'm pretty sure it does as well. Yeah. Yep, that's it for me, my friend. For episode Sweet. 177, I think this was. Okay. Uh, now let's let's do the final draft then. Hmm. I decided to, to uh, dip into something I shouldn't have, uh, <laughs> just because it's got uh, more sugar than I would like to ingest, being strictly <laughs> honest here. But um, lately my mother has been buying this Wolfhead coffee liqueur. And I decided to, to, to buy one for myself on the way home from work today. And um, it is very nice. Um, definitely strong coffee flavored. It is so unbelievably, regrettably sweet that I think I can see sugar crystals starting to form on the insides of the glass. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. It's like a mouthful of brown sugar water, but it's it's still delightful. I'm probably not going to buy it anymore, though. It's uh, apparently 30% alcohol by volume. Um, so it's not a particularly strong whiskey. It's, it's it's just so overpoweringly sweet that I'm probably going to avoid it in the future for the same reason that I avoid crown apple or like sure. maple yeah. or vanilla. I'm just I'm not really into the very, very sweet. Of course, it, it calls itself a liqueur. So I should have picked up on that when I bought it. Yeah, um, I was going to say, like, have you ever had aroma. Kahlua? Oh, I do like Kahlua, but I don't like it um, as is. I like it mixed with things. Okay. It's a little like overpowering it, in the same how, way. How does this compare to Kahlua? Like, um, it's it like a watered idea? down Kahlua. Imagine, add, okay. imagine just um, adding half Kahlua, half water, and mixing them, and, and boiling them, right. and just like, yeah, yeah it's it's like, <laughs> you know, Kahlua is okay. a lot darker, a lot thicker. Um, this is like a thinner, far more sugary. Yeah, gotcha. I'm not gotcha. a big fan. No, I, I gotta admit, I'm not a big fan. But um, besides okay. that, though, I was also drinking an orange cinnamon spiced tea and that was very lovely mm. it's almost cold Orange now cinnamon Port a 20 tea. ounce mug here with my friends memorabilia <laughs> but uh yeah that one's very delightful i do highly recommend that if you get a chance to have like any orange cinnamon in your tea it's very good so that, yeah that that's what i've been sipping delicious. on for today oh yeah how nice. about yourself my friend nice tonic water uh no actually today i am drinking a non-alcoholic beer Okay. I decided to try one of these um, like during during the last four months or so, almost five months now of uh, not drinking 
Uh, like I've tried a couple of non-alcoholic beers. Uh, like I tried like Heineken Zero, which is disgusting. I tried Bud Light Zero, like which Heineken is not general. disgusting, but it wasn't any good. Um, uh, but I got a uh, kind of a mix pack from Untitled Art in Wisconsin of their non-alcoholic beers. And this one's a juicy IPA. And I, it's not not amazing. I mean, like it has flavor, but it's not particularly juicy. Like it, it, the, uh, I don't know. What, whatever the process is that they, you know, yank the alcohol out of it. I don't think it worked super well for for this style of beer. Um, I also got a, a chocolate milk stout from them, and I've, I've tried one of those, the, the non-alcoholic chocolate milk stout, and that mm-hmm. one's actually quite good. Like, it tastes very similar to some of the local chocolate milk stouts in Fort Collins. So, um, nice. But, but yeah, so I was drinking this non-alcoholic juicy IPA. But, of course, I have to talk about something thematically appropriate. Yes, and you do. I have here an unopened bottle uh, because this has a lot of alcohol in it. This is 13.6%. Uh, this is a collaboration beer between Cerebral Brewing in Denver, Colorado and Phase 3 Brewing. Uh, it is a bourbon barrel-aged imperial stout brewed with coconut. Uh, it's aged Ooh. 23 months in 10-year Elijah Craig bourbon barrels. And then conditioned on a blend of raw and toasted coconut. I am probably going to save this one for the winter. Uh, it's probably going to be a, a very nice, you know, snowy night sort of crack this thing open. Um, the pastry stouts I've had from Cerebral in the past are always really good. I know I've brought a couple of them on. Uh, I, I believe I had one uh, Ancient Ruins I had on for uh, our Dawn Shard episode. I'm pretty sure I've had Here Be Monsters from them as well. From oh, I've from heard that. Else. I've heard you bring that one on, yeah. But uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm you know n- not on a day like today when it's 93 degrees here in Fort Collins. Uh, probably wait wait a while uh, towards the winter when I whenever I start drinking again. But uh, but this one is is for your favorite scene in this passage, Rob. Oh yeah. Uh, it is called Phantom Sense. Oh. Yeah. Oh, mic drop. Yeah. Yeah. That works so nicely. Oh, God, that scene. Did with you the not dude, feel the, the shaking was, when they came in? Did you? That, that was so brilliantly done. And the fact that not, like, they were not addressing the, the witnessing party in saying that was so much creepier. Mm-hmm. That they were talking with one another. These figures were talking with one another about the figures that were there and observing them. It was, oh. Yeah. Really it was cool so scene. Good. It was so good. You want to hear how dumb I am, by the way? Uh, Check this out before we, before we take off. I totally forgot that I actually bought a thematically appropriate beer for this episode. It's actually <laughs> still upstairs in the fridge, and I totally forgot about it. I just remembered halfway through your, uh, your <laughs> final draft entry there. So what I would have brought for today which actually matches um, <laughs> it was one of Ontario's first, apparently one of Ontario's first session IPAs. Um, it was, it was pretty weak as far as APB goes. And I, mm-hmm. and I remember the last time I had it, it was very, very much so overpoweringly bitter that I actually did not like, I normally do like IPAs. Um, I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of this one, um, but it was dedicated thematically to, of course, just our whole 
journey through the botanic gardens and it was called detour from oh, Muskoka nice. brewery. Yeah. So that was the one I should have brought on. I bought another one. It's still sitting in the fridge and I forgot about it until Drew's final draft there. So Severian <laughs> certainly takes oh, a couple well. of detours. <laughs> yeah. Just a couple in, here, in, but uh, uh, we have four, uh, four chapters. Garden. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there we go, man. Okay. Well, this has been episode 177 of the inking out loud podcast. Uh, Next up, again, I'm not sure uh, if if uh, I'm going to be able to record it, but right now I'm looking at doing Shadowfall, the second Alphabet Squadron book. We're going to get John back on. I'm um, going to try to get that up next, but we may not be able Sweet. to record it in time, and we'll have to push that off. Uh, if so, uh, the next episode all of you will be listening to will be chapters 23 through 27 of The Shadow of the Torturer. Uh Lots of fun stuff coming up in those chapters. As always, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Coffee KO-FI or Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You know, that financial support means a great deal to us, and it helps us keep this thing going as we are somehow approaching 200 episodes, which uh, <laughs> I was just talking on Discord, you know, with some people about that, and, and I was like, man, I need to start planning something for... 200 you know a little celebration since we did a celebration for 100 a couple of years ago yeah but but yeah i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my co-host rob santos right here thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time